This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, supporting journalistic excellence in the digital age. Learn more about Knight Foundation at kf.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On April 4th, the Washington Post brought together journalists, advocates, and digital innovators to examine the state of local news and efforts to revitalize and protect it. Local journalists continue to break news and expertly report some of the most important stories of our time. In this segment, a panel of award-winning investigative reporters discuss the survival of local investigative and enterprise reporting in the digital age. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. I'm Margaret Sullivan, media columnist of The Washington Post, and I'm uh, very happy to be here today with three incredible journalists. We're really very lucky to to have them with us and to hear about their work. I'm delighted to introduce them. Uh, Andrew Chavez, senior computational reporter at the Dallas Morning News. He was part of the team whose investigation, Pain and Profit, revealed that thousands of Texans were being denied life-sustaining drugs and treatments by private contractors hired by the state to manage their treatment. Next to him is Julie K. Brown, an investigative reporter at the Miami Herald, whose recent investigation, Perversion of Justice, just won a Polk Award. It examines the plea deal given to affluent Palm Beach sex abuser Jeffrey Epstein. And sitting closest to me here is Sasha Pfeiffer, investigations correspondent at NPR. Sasha was part of the Boston Globe Spotlight team that won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service after revealing the Catholic Church's cover-up of widespread clergy sexual abuse. So uh, we are really very lucky to have them, and we'll get into it right now. So you've all done outstanding investigations work at local newspapers and other organizations. Something I think people don't always understand is how time-consuming that reporting is. So tell us a little bit, using your specific experiences, why it takes so long. Andrew. Sure. So, you know, we were dealing with this massive uh, system. It was the single... Uh, It's the biggest uh, line item in the Texas budget. It's uh, regulated by the largest state agency in the country that has like about 50,000 employees. And so to get inside of that took, um, takes a huge amount of effort. Um, We ended up, by the time we were done with this, with I wanna say around 70,000 pages of records. Um, So, you know, you can imagine that reading that and understanding that and unpacking that takes a huge amount of time. And then also turning around and boiling that down in a way that we can explain it to people and make them care um, about the stories of the people that we're telling. Uh, it's a huge undertaking. It's a huge undertaking. And, you know, obviously making sure that all of that is, is accurate and, you know, it's a, it's a huge amount of work and it takes a lot of time and you don't see the efforts until the end, you know. So when we How are, long did it take? About 18 months. I mean, and that was with us doing other stuff, you know, in between off and on. But I mean, it was uh, it was well over a year to to find the story and well worth it. Absolutely. (laughs) Julie, how about you? Well, I began this story uh, 
probably as a result of some um, tips that I got about this case, which had been written about pretty widely over the past 10 years. It was a 10-year-old case. I sort of approached this case. There was, uh, of course, lots and lots of documents. And I approached this case the way that a, I think a, a police detective who joins the force opens up a box and has a cold case and they decide they want to, you know, do a forensic examination of it after all these years. So, you, so what do you do? You have to go over every single piece of evidence all over again. And what happens when you do that sometimes is you discover new things in that, in that evidence or you find people who back then didn't want to talk and maybe they want to talk. In this particular case, I, I actually began this project uh, which was about the abuse of, of probably hundreds of young teenage girls in Palm Beach by a very wealthy uh, billionaire. Uh, I began it by trying to figure out who the girls were because they were underage. Nobody knew who they were. And I thought to myself, if I could get them now, then, you know, they were teenagers then and now they're in their 30s, they might be willing to talk about this, especially in the wake of uh, Alexander Acosta, the prosecutor, being nominated for President Trump's cabinet post. So it just took a long time to, uh, you know, just deconstruct the whole case, find the women, and, you know, start from scratch, essentially. Congratulations on the work. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And Sasha, you've done a lot of interesting work, and I guess uh, the, perhaps, I, I, well, not even perhaps, but the most high profile of which was the Boston Globe Spotlight uh, series uh, or investigation that was turned into a movie that we've all seen, right? Um, so, you know, let's talk about how long it took to do that investigation. That was a relatively quick investigation, only because part of it involved us trying to unseal some public records with the help of the Globe's lawyers. The lawyers were successful, and suddenly we had a date when we knew public records were going to be released, which meant they would be open to other media outlets as well. So we really had to race to make sure the reporting we had done for about five or six months didn't go to waste and we could have our story. But there is often a huge public document, public records element to these stories, and it takes a long time to find them, to get them, to appeal uh, rejections of public records requests. In the movie, there's a scene where we realize that if you go through the annual directories of the Archdiocese of Boston, you can track what priests are in which churches and where they've been moved over the years. In the movie, it was about a three-minute exciting montage of us in different places going through the directories. In real life, it was three weeks of absolute tedium that I think probably damaged all of our eyesight because we were having to so carefully go through these directories. But that's the reality of this work, time-consuming, sometimes tedious, but a big payoff in the end, but not quick. Right. Exactly. So one of the things that, that I worry about as someone who cares a lot about local journalism is that investigative journalism is so time-consuming and so um, expensive to do because of the amount of staff and perhaps lawyers' fees and all of that kind of thing, that, that in this troubled time for local journalism, we won't be able to do as much of it. So I guess what I want to ask you is when there aren't enough people to go around in Metro Daily newsrooms that have lost staff, should investigative journalism get higher priority than routine coverage of local government meetings and so on, which also are important? How do you, how do you prioritize? I mean, maybe we have a, a little bit of a bias for investigative journalism here, but how do you see it? I'll start again with you, Andrew. Well, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's an either or necessarily. I think that all of those things can be covered with an investigative focus. 
Um, you know, we're we're fortunate. Um, we're fortunate in our newsroom that we still do have a robust investigative team. Um, but you know, like I said, that whole time where we were working on this project, we weren't out doing those sorts of things. Um, but I, I I think that I think that the two happen have to happen together. Um, you know, we found this story. Um, because my reporting partner was out on the beat and was in Austin and was hearing was hearing things that ended up being some of the main findings in our series. So, um, you know, I think they have to both happen together, and I think that the more we cover things through that investigative accountability lens, the better our work is. Right, and as you say, and this is sort of a truism in newsrooms, but uh, certainly want to share it with you, is that the best investigations, many of them, do come out of beat reporting. So there's kind of a double whammy that's happening here as there are fewer beat reporters out there. There are fewer sort of tips or knowledge. There's nobody at City Hall all day long. And so we may not know as much of what's going on. Julie, how do you see it? Well, um, I remember the uh, line that uh, former um, Speaker Tip O'Neill once said, which was, all politics is local. And at the Herald, uh, we place a great emphasis on local reporting, and we have some, a great staff, tenacious mm -hmm. staff. Uh, we always feel like we kind of play over our weight. You know, we always um, punch over our weight. So we have a lot of reporters who, you know, even the story that we, we just are working on now about Cindy Yang and the, um, the Chinese woman that got arrested at Mar-a-Lago. We've been working on that story and getting tip after tip after tip. And some of the people that get the tips are the beat reporters, and some of them and our investigative reporters then pair up with the beat reporters in order to make these stories happen. So I think that's part of the ways that we are trying to uh, make you know, do investigative journalism and local journalism at the same time. And at time. the Herald, is there a special team, like a spotlight team, or are the investigative reporters kind of worked into the newsroom as a whole? I mean, how sequestered are they? Uh, both. I mean, we, we have a core investigative team, but those uh, team uh, members of the team work with some of the beat reporters when something happens. We're very good at that. We're very collegial because we all are all excited about good stories. Right. So uh, we, you know, it's exciting to work with younger reporters, quite frankly, who know how to do social media a little bit better than older reporters. And everybody has their specialty, and that's what makes uh, what we do uh, work, quite frankly. Sasha, so you've moved to NPR, and you see you may see this question from a couple different directions. How do you? How would you prioritize? This will be an unsatisfying answer for managers and editors who have to make the calls about how to res allocate resources. But I, I do think you have to try to preserve both because stories really do bubble up. Mm -hmm. There was a there's a little paper in the Blackstone Valley which covers about 24 communities in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and a tweet from a reporter there got a lot of attention recently because he said, "I am the, often the only reporter at municipal meetings I go to, and many many municipal meetings I, I'm not able to attend." And he was, he was reflecting on what does that mean for local news coverage or lack of news, local news coverage. And, you know, we have to try to find a way, I think, to think differently about how we cover news because things are, things are not good for newspapers. I want to be optimistic, but the prospects are not good. And I think we need to find different ways to collaborate, to maybe think less competitively and more collaboratively, mm -hmm. to find ways to pair newspapers with public radio, with nonprofits, because the end goal is covering the news, even if it's not to get it first or only, I right. think. Right, and that sort of plays into my next question for all of you, which is that you've done a lot of your 
most of the work that's been done on this panel has been done at newspapers, and newspapers, local, regional newspapers, are really uh, under fire and really under siege. Um, I think we put the numbers up on the uh, on the board earlier, but there's a recent Pew study that says that you know most people, 71% of people, uh, you know, American citizens, don't realize that local news is anything but financially healthy when the reality is we're really, really in trouble. So, you know, to what extent do you think the new nonprofits and other organizations that we're seeing come up can do the work that's been traditionally done by, by local newspapers? Andrew? Well, I think there's great potential. I think there's great potential, and I, I, welcome, I welcome all journalism, you know, um, in whatever form uh, and however it's paid for. Um, and, and I think we're starting to see that right now, um, both through the collaborations, you know, the ProPublica uh, local reporting network came up earlier, um, and through, you know, um, the, the little uh, smaller nonprofits that are popping up around the country. My home state of New Mexico, uh, you know, I see um, investigative stories coming from nonprofits there uh, that directly impact the rural area where my parents live where uh, there is a there is a lack of you know it was, it was one of those news desert deserts in the map earlier and I'm seeing stories now that are coming out due to that um, due to those nonprofits and I'm that if it were going to happen without those nonprofits I think it would have happened already mm. so I absolutely welcome it Julie how do you see it can they, is there going to be enough to supplement what's being lost I hope so I think that it's already starting to work for a lot of uh, newspapers to to work uh, collaboratively with some of these organizations like the Pulitzer Center. Um, McClatchy just did a, a big piece, uh, that's our parent company, did a big project where we um, joined together with 10 of our local newspapers and The Trace, which is a um, nonprofit media organization that it ha has been um, advocating for gun uh, control. And we, we did this very powerful piece all over the country and all the gun deaths that ha had happened. We did it just by all working together along with the trace to do that. It was pretty powerful. You guys are so hopeful. I love it. I actually am not, but, um, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, Sasha, I want to start with you on this next question. Uh, Non-journalists don't always understand how we do our work. Uh, what would you like people to know about how investigative journalists work uh, beyond what they learned in Spotlight. It, Spotlight was a, it was, it was a, many people after seeing that movie would say things like, do you really go out and knock on doors like that? Yeah. And I thought that is such a basic part of our job. I can't believe people would be surprised we do it. But as we've learned from the study you mentioned where people don't know about the health of news, there's a lot people don't realize. I, I guess I hope people realize how um, you know, really good reporters put a lot of time and energy and thought into doing this. We take time. We try to be very fair. We try to talk to as many people. I, I guess I wish people understood how much hard work and effort goes into it. I know that's a very broad answer, but I think that there's an enormous payoff when it's done really well, and I wish people would be aware of what's lost when you don't have mm -hmm. it. Julie, what, what do you wish people understood or would well, like them to understand? You know, a, a lot of these stories you go after very powerful people, and it's, it's 
you know, it, it's sometimes intimidating, and you have, it, fortunately, I, you know, I work for a newspaper that supports me, but every day you're out there really fighting for records, fighting to, to uh, talk to people who often don't want to talk to you, and then, you know, you often have people that then come after you, and I don't know how much the public really realized how much we f really fight for the work that we do in some cases. And Andrew? That what we do um, costs money, and that um, if you yeah. if you read one of these stories and the box pops up and you think that it's important and that it made the world a better place, put in your credit card and make it happen some more, because you know, I mean just on on this story alone, we spent over twenty thousand dollars just fighting records requests. Yeah. I mean we got this the salaries of two people for eighteen months you know, and the massive team that went into editing it and shooting the photos and, you know, it, it's, and the tedium, the tedium that Sasha talked about, I mean, that's absolutely a part of this. It's incredibly time-consuming work and it's not cheap. Right. Investigative journalism is often judged by results or impact. Legislative reform, for example. Is this, in your opinion, the main way we should judge the quality of in investigative reporting? Sasha. I think that's a hard question. I know that ProPublica has really wrestled with what is the meaning of impact. Mm -hmm. um, actually, let me, I wanna say one other thing about something else you asked, and then sure. maybe I'll pass that question to someone else. In terms of collaboration. Very clever. You know, <laughs> you know um, the Knight Foundation is an example of this, pouring money into news organizations. ProPublica has tried to create these open source data tools, software that they can give to other news outlets so that they can do their own data-driven investigations. NPR is, has created this collaborative journalism network where they say, look, we've got 1,800 reporters, 200 bureaus around the country, regional coverage, beat expertise. If we think of it as sort of a nationwide network of bureaus, we can try to replace what is being lost by newspapers. And I feel like that is what we need to begin to try to experiment and do. If, 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 if we can't totally save all our newspapers, and if a lot of those print reporters are coming into places like radio, mm -hmm. we need to find ways to integrate them so that we can continue doing what we used to do in a different way. And fast, right? Yes, and fast. And impact. Question. Impact, yes. How well, important of is it? Of, of course, impact is important. I mean, how how I mean, important is sort of legislative reform and you know measurable change? I guess is what I'm saying. I, we were just talking about that. Um, in that, it seems like when these projects. Um, you know, they, they launch and then there's all this uh, fanfare and oh, we gotta do something, we gotta change this. And it often happens. And I think one thing that uh, all media doesn't do enough of is to keep following up on those stories after those. Because often what happens is there's all this legislation that's it's proposed and then, you know, six months down the line, whatever happened to that bill, you know? So I think that the media needs to do a little bit better job of pushing for that and one way to do that is really to, to have um, some people in the community often when these stories break you always have activists that get involved and have them when I did the Florida prison project uh, I couldn't possibly keep up with all the reforms that were happening but a lot of the activists that came uh, that rose from the project really worked with me to, to, to keep you know, they had marches in, in Tallahassee about prison reform, and, and it helped that there was, was a good community of people that were, uh, became activists as a result of the stories that I did. And Andrew, uh, maybe a way to answer this is, is to describe what impact has come from uh, pain and profit. 
Sure. So, you know, we found we found a wide number of, of we found a huge number of flaws in the system for caring for these elderly and, and really sick kids. Um, you know, everything from the doctors that were promised were not actually there. You know, services were being denied. There was a wide range of things. And we have seen a package of bills that's moving through the legislature right now uh, to address almost all of those things. Um, I think there's over 20 bills, one of which is a big omnibus bill that sort of just ticks through the story almost. Um, and and I do think that matters. Um, and I think that it's a good sign, frankly, that you're writing about things that can actually be fixed. You know, it's a good it's a good sign that you're writing about things that are actually resonating with people. And I think that the the more that we can present our stories in a way that actually provides those solutions, uh, in addition to just pointing out the problems, the better our work is. I'm guessing that there was a lot of public response to the series. Uh, there was. There were legislative hearings, uh, you know, in the weeks that followed um, where, you know, many of the people from our stories got to come up to the dais and tell their, tell their legislators. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I have many more questions, and I, uh, I know that we could talk about this for a long time, but we're actually just about out of time. So I want to thank this fabulous panel for the work they've done and for being here. Um, If you would like to watch full interviews or highlights from today's program, you can do so at WashingtonPostLive.com. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com. <laughs>